0: We all have a vice, exercise, it doesn't matter, you know what I mean? And so this one happens to be life-destroying, and people don't go into it going, oh, wow, I want to be a drug addict, I want my life to end, I want to lose everything, I want to go to jail, I want to smell like crap, you know, I'm coming from the jail smell, you know, I want to I eat jail food, I want to, you know, I want to, nobody does nobody wants that and if anybody thinks that they're crazy nobody (laughs) wants that for their life
1: it's time for the share recovery podcast where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery and now here's your host oh Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of
2: TSP, the Share Podcast. And today we have Katrina King joining us. I'm so excited to have Katrina on the show. And the way I came into contact with Katrina was she joined the private accountability group and she posted a video. The video was called Chasing the Dragon about opiate abuse, and it caught my attention. I checked it out, and lo and behold, Katrina, along with her daughter's story, was featured on this FBI documentary. If you have not seen Chasing the Dragon, please check it out. It is so powerful that after I saw it, I immediately reached out to Katrina and asked her to be on the show. Now, she not only became addicted to opiates and spent time in jail, but while she was in jail, Her daughter, Kirsten, dies of an opiate overdose. It's just a gripping and powerful story. I'm not even going to begin to dive into it. I'm going to let Katrina tell the story. So let's dive right in. But first, a little Share Podcast news. Okay, guys, another quick reminder that I will be at the Seattle International Narcotics Anonymous Convention this year, July 29th, 30th, and 31st. 2016 it will be held at the seattle airport marriott and I will be the main speaker on Friday night opening up the convention. If you go to the SHARE Podcast website, on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a banner. It's a blue banner that says S-I-N-A-C 2016. Click on that banner. It'll send you to the page where you have information about room rates, about registering for the convention. Everything you need to know about attending the convention is right on that website. So again, I would love to meet you guys in person. If you can make it out there, would love to see you. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the share podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the join the Facebook private group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook private group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily old timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in Get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button. And it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use Sober Grid or looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for share podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says Alumni Group. Click on add Group and type in S-H-A-I-R, and the Share Podcast Alumni Group will pop right up. And for those of you who would like to know which are the most popular podcast episodes, there is a banner on the right-hand side of the page as you scroll down that says Most Popular Podcast Episodes. Click on that banner, and it will take you to the page that features the most popular podcast episodes based on listener feedback and number of downloads. And for those of you who would like a list of all the books that have been recommended by our guests, go to the right-hand side of the website and click on the banner that says Recommended Books. It'll take you right to the page where we have a list of all the recommended books. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast, Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E., who handles the audio editing for each podcast episode, Omar Hernandez, that does all the social media cover art, and Krista Wojo, who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there is no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So let's dive into this week's episode, but first, a quick message from our sponsors. (laughs) SoberNation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, SoberNation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.soberNation.com. SoberNation.com. SoberNation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to daily com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hi Katrina, thanks for joining us. Hi. How are you feeling today?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
2: Excellent, excellent. And yourself? I'm doing wonderful, thank you for asking. I'm actually really excited to have you on the show because after I watched the documentary you were on it really, really brought a lot of things uh, to light as far as the fact that I live in Costa Rica now. It's so different than, it, than the epidemic that's been going on in, in the United States. So I know you have firsthand knowledge of just how bad things have gotten in the U.S. So I, I, I'd, I'd certainly wanted to get your feedback on this.
0: Yes. Yes, unfortunately.
2: Yes. So, um, so today, folks, we have Katrina King joining us. On the SHARE podcast, Katrina is the founder of Kirsten Story and also stars in the FBI and DEA documentary titled Chasing the Dragon. So Katrina, let's dive right in here. So Katrina, just tell us about what your daily life is like today. What is your normal daily routine, including this movement that you've started, uh, Kirsten Story?
0: Okay, well, <laughs> um, I'm actually, I'm in a relationship now, uh, have been for a couple of years, and um, I actually do quite a bit of uh, work, you know, with his marketing for his business and, um, you know, the handling the, the out gallon calls, inbound calls whatsoever uh, regarding the, you know, maintenance of ongoing administrative-related uh, task on that end, and then I would say the majority of my time is spent basically networking, not just with Kirsten's story, but also working on a, on a memoir that I'm, I've been working on for some time and also networking with um, other, you know, addiction-focused or recovery-focused um, groups, mothers who've lost children, that sort of thing, and it's, it's a passion of mine. So, you know, I pretty much from the moment I wake up till I go to sleep... It'd be all hours of the night, actually. You know, I'm looking for ways to um, have some sort of effect, you know, whether if it's on a one-on-one basis or, you know, with with a way that I can figure out on how to change laws and things like that.
2: Absolutely. Now, on a day-to-day basis, there's a few things, at least for me and for for other people that, you know, uh, need uh, a routine to maintain our sobriety. What is it that you do on a daily basis, or not even, maybe even a daily basis? What is it? What is your regular routine to maintain your sobriety? Do you go to meetings? Do you? What is it? What is it that you do that grounds you?
0: So what I do is I focus on other people. I chose to do this stuff not to become a hero. You know, I'm not in promoting this awareness and promoting. Um, you know, just curse the story or my story or whatever for that purpose. I do it to give back because if I'm focusing on other people, I'm not focusing on myself. If I'm not focusing on myself. I don't feel the pain. If I don't feel the pain, then I don't feel the need. So if that makes any sense.
2: It absolutely makes sense, Katrina. And, you know, we only keep what we have by giving it away. And what better way to hold yourself accountable than to commemorate the memory of your daughter and being her voice now that she is no longer here, it's absolutely beautiful and so what is your what is your anniversary date and how much clean time do you have
0: uh i want i don't you know I never actually reflected on the actual date, but um right after my daughter passed away, it was October eleventh uh um, I'm sorry October sixteenth two thousand eleven I want to say for that week after um I was you know someone had given me something and I was using. Um, I was fur- furloughed on, you know, by the jail at that point. And I, I had that, you know, was actually considering suicide, but my son kept me going. Um, then I was remanded back to the jail to finish my sentence and I got out and was on work release. And of course I had to be straight for that. And then once I was released to the ankle bracelet and then, you know, they put me through several stair steps and then I got out from the ankle bracelet and I was, um, you know, Free and it was all around me because the only job I could get at that point even though I had education and all this experience was a job at an IHOP which was through the work release and I was uh, working myself up from a waitress to a manager you know but everybody because it was all work release jail right in the center of the town where all this stuff's going on it was all around me. So I think there were a couple times where I partake and I couldn't, I couldn't, number one, I couldn't get high. I just, it wasn't the same as before. I don't know what happened, but I just couldn't. And then number two, it was such a sense of guilt. And uh, I don't even know, you know, just feeling really disgusted with myself. Um, So it wasn't solving my problem and it was making me feel worse. And so I guess about Oh, I want to say at the point that I ended up um, living in the townhouse that my daughter had lived in with her fiance, about that point is when I had decided. So I want to say it was uh, mid-2012 um, when I was completely, you know what I mean? Not yes. for, yeah. for the fact that I was on probation or whatever, that I personally chose, you know, made the conscious decision to, to not do anything anymore. So about 2012.
2: So about four years now. Correct. Okay, and do you have a spiritual practice, or do you have some sort of a connection with a higher power of some sort?
0: Abs- well, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I've, you know, I've gone back and forth about that throughout my life. Um, I had a um, unfortunate situation in the church when I was younger, so I had a lot of doubts. You know, a lot of people that you know said they were religious and they believed in God, and yet they were horrible people. So. However, after I lost my daughter, at the point where you would think someone would say, because I I did, I'm like, before she passed away, I thought to myself in the jail, I was talking to a corrections officer, and she said, Katrina, you've lost your home, you've lost everything, you know, you've lost your car, but you still have your children and you still have your health. And I I stopped for a moment, I'm like, you know, you're right. You're right. And I thought to myself, there's no way God would actually go as far as taking my children. You know, that's how I thought of it. I wouldn't take my children because I'd lost my parents when I was a kid. So I've, you know, hit rock bottom. That's just not possible. Uh, and then when it happened, I was angry and I was bartering and I was like, oh, I can't believe this shit. Like, really? Who does this happen to? You know, <laughs> I just saw it. this and I was angry and I was yeah. like, I can't stand you, I don't believe in you, I don't even think you exist, and this whole thing. And, and then I came to sort of, I don't know, like a, a peace, you know, that, um, yeah, absolutely, I do I do believe in God that doesn't equal church for me, because I don't believe that you find your God or spirituality in a church, um, but it's a peace and a belief that I never had before, so.
2: Well, that's exactly how I feel, and many have... Many of the people that I've interviewed feel exactly the same way. It's a it's a spiritual relationship, individual, individually that I have constructed between myself and my higher power, which I choose to call God, and it, it is void of religious interference. That's basically you know what I have going on as well. So I can totally relate.
0: Well, I'm t- you know what I always say, and people look at me and they're like, oh, that's just a cop out. No, it's not. I said I'm too humble too many times I thought I've known things or I figured things out only to find out that I didn't know anything, um, (laughs) or I've judged or whatever. So I'm too humble to assume that I absolutely know all the answers. So to go with one thing or another, just to me, doesn't seem, I said, we'll find out, you know, in the end, but I have to, you know, I, I went through the whole idea of God taking, and then I started understanding that it isn't God taking my child it's a cause and effect sort of thing with your life you know with things and whether it's somebody else the actions of someone else it's still a cause and effect thing so I came to a point where I, I said you know I've got a peace there there's um, there's no God up there punishing anyone or putting us through a series of things that we have to you know, to get through to become a better person, it's it's a matter of choices because life throws things at different people for different reasons, you know. And we just have to to get through it the best we can, and and that's what I'm choosing to do. And and you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But you know what? It gets me through now. So,
2: well, that's beautiful. That's you know, again, it there's a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities to the way I believe, and many of our listeners. So there is there there is that definite connection that we have is. As addicts even because our belief system about a higher power and about God is generally a a very spiritual and very personal relationship devoid of religion. So I'm right there with you. So here's what we're going to do. Katrina, I'm going to turn this show over to you and I want you to tell your story. And like you were saying earlier that when you first did the interview, you were kind of, in a fog and a little apprehensive and there's things that you didn't say or didn't mention. So I want you to just relax and I want you to tell us what it was like. I want you to tell us your story, the battle that you had with drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom. And then finally that journey into recovery that led you up until today. So Katrina, take it away.
0: Sure. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I I think I always knew I had um, sort of addicted tendencies um, from childhood. Um, my parents, my, my father died when I was just a few months old on a motorcycle, but he struggled with alcoholism and that sort of thing. And then um, my mother and stepfather uh, died on New Year's Eve 1978 in a car accident, and they drowned. Um, alcohol and drugs weren't involved with that accident, but they, they too, you know, um, would lean, you know what I mean, on things. So um, I had a grandfather who was in the Korean War, who was um, an alcoholic, and then later a dry alcoholic. He was very, extremely abusive. So all things considered, I knew it was rampant in the family. Um, and so as I was growing up, I was sort of of the, of the mindset, well, you know, it won't happen to me. But unfortunately, you know, I left home at an early age. I was taken from the home Uh, removed for abuse. And then I was entered into the foster care system and group homes, what have you. And by that point, I was so rebellious because I had been living in California. And when my parents died, we were uh, eventually moved here to Virginia. And so the environment was so different for us. It was like a huge culture shock. Um, And we weren't raised with religion in California. We were raised with plenty of love there, even though it was unconventional, it was still worked for us, you know. And when we came to Virginia, it was just polar opposite. So I rebelled against the whole idea of it. Um I had two half sisters. They they more so embraced it because you know it was the only mother they had, the only they didn't know any better. So they did a little better with it. And yeah, you know, that was it. So uh anyway, I ran away from group home after group home. Um, you know, ended up because of of abuse or whatever putting myself time and time again into situations that just furthered the abuse, you know? Um, and it's what we do It's <laughs> once you, you know, that cycle begins, you're just, it's almost like you're asking for it. You just keep going. It's because it's the only, it's the only thing, you know, even if it's pain. So right. I kept doing that to myself. And then I started drinking and I was drinking pretty bad. I was actually, I had, um, drank so much once that I, alcohol poisoning, they transferred me, I was about 14 years old, and they transferred me to a, um, a hospital, mental hospital, it was a public hospital, because I had no insurance, and that cycle, you know, once I started there, I just kept, it was a revolving door for that as well, because I, and you know, engaged with a doctor there who really took a, a liking to me, she was um, a survivor of the Holocaust, an old ho- Dutch lady, actually, oh, wow. and she was an atheist, and, you know, she kept insisting to me that, you know, these people, they're Bible thumpers. There is no God.
1: You have to rely <laughs> on
0: yourself, young lady. <laughs> Men aren't gonna do it for you. And I, and I was just looking at her like, okay. And you know, I had these horrible sexual tendencies, you know, in her mind. I kept going out and she was she she just would rack her every time I'd come back to the hospital after running away or or whatever, she would she would just act like she was just at her wit's end, like what as almost a personal failing that she wasn't able to secure to me, you know, and yet those people, and there was a few of them actually, that, that were so engaged with me at that age, you know, actually did contribute to me being able to be successful later on. So all that said, I went through a period of cocaine use, um, alcohol, whatever. And, um, about 18 years old, I was living in Virginia beach and sort of i was actually getting ready to um i was working at an adult club and i was actually headed out to california to do some things i don't want to get into all that but i was just dead set i had such a cynical view of life of men of everything and then um uh, i got really tired i couldn't get out of bed and i was very very sick and i went to the hospital and they told me i was pregnant and i was like wow
2: oh boy Complete
0: shock i said I can't, it's never happened before. The doctor looked at me, he's like, well, there's a first for everything. You're only 18 years old. <laughs> you know <what> you expect. <laughs> so uh, I, you know, after the shock sort of wore off, I started, um, I said, I've got to do something, you know, because it was like, oh my God, I have a family and it was an excitement and it was, I don't even know. It was, it just gave me purpose that I was lacking. So I started calling people that I had known that had helped me along the way and they were so generous about taking me in and, and they uh, got me set up, and eventually I ended up um, getting settled somewhere, you know, a, a unwed mothers type of thing, um, run through the Catholic charities, I think, and that was in Richmond, Virginia, and um, I went to school, was working part-time, taking care of my daughter, found a good job, got involved with a guy in Northern Virginia, moved in with him, and then, you know through my connections, I got a pretty good job, um, and started working later, went on to have my son. And during that period, like I said, from the point that I found I was pregnant, I never drank again, you know, up until about age 25, never had another drink. I, um, Never, never smoked cigarettes. I didn't smoke weed because it didn't really. I like the hard stuff, you know. The weed was just like a, eh, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. It's like it's, it seemed harmless to me. It just didn't do anything for me. I get it. So I was just like um straight as an arrow. I would, I wouldn't even take a Tylenol if it did. It was, you know, one. I, I just was so determined that I was going to give them a better life. So. Anyway, I worked hard. I worked myself up through the ranks. Sometimes I was working 10 hour days and in hindsight, I definitely regret that because my, my kids told me a few years back, they said, mom, we used to be so excited waiting at home for you. We just couldn't wait, you know, to see you. And it's just, I started crying because I didn't realize how much my children loved me. I guess in hindsight, I think I didn't feel worthy of that. I, I still probably don't, but I didn't, I just didn't feel worthy of that respect, you know, that yeah. level of love. It just seemed like, wow, you know? Yeah. And yet I was working so hard because I wanted them to have all these things that I didn't have, you know, thinking that was the answer. Um, anyway, fast forward. My daughter got into her teen years, and that was about the time that I decided it was time to let her know who her real dad was. And that was, an, I think, a very big mistake because – once I did that, I also involved myself with him, um, and he had a lot of problems. He was still stuck where I had, you know, moved past, and he, um, you know, bipolar depression and, uh, you know, just real manic type of person, constant, you know, uh, trouble, importation of marijuana from Mexico, just all kinds of things, and um, he came into Yeah. He came into our lives at the point he was in our lives. He was good. He'd gotten through all that phase. He was drug free. He had turned the corner, you know, so I thought. So he came into our lives. I had ended my relationship with my son's uh, father. We just were not compatible. And so I took on the house is because I was, you know, made more money. I took on the house and everything he left. Um, and it was a real bad time. I felt a lot of guilt, you know, because I, I felt like I was doing him a favor because I was being honest with him. So I brought on my daughter's dad. Um, she did not connect with him very well at all. Um, she felt that he was, um, well, he was. He started to show signs of having, you know, his fragility was back. He, he was, um, you know, he had a substance abuse disorder amongst other things, and it just started to come out more and more, you know. Couldn't handle any kind of stress, that sort of thing. So while I was so busy trying to nurture him, my daughter's becoming a teenager, and she's starting to rebel. And she's out there, and then one night, um, something had happened when she was a little bit smaller. We were in Mexico visiting my son's father's family, and there was an incident with an emotionally or mentally ill family member who had uh, tried to molest my daughter. So that was traumatizing for her, but we thought we could get through that. And then she's about in her mid-teens. She was out with some friends one night, and one of the girls she was with bailed on them, and she found herself alone with a bunch of guys, and they ended up, um, you know, trying to keep, yeah, it was a real, real bad situation, which I won't go into, but the next day when she told me about it, she was shaking, and she had just this pain in her eyes, and she was shaking. She couldn't get the words out, and when she told me, I think that just crushed me, because I had lived to make sure that my children would not go through what I had gone through, and I felt like such a failure, even though she had snuck out of the house. And, you know, I just thought how I should have been there. You know, she's 14, but I should have been there. And I just, you know, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go kill the guys, you know.
2: That's <laughs> what I'd be thinking. We're
0: looking for the guys. And I'm, Yeah, we were looking for them. We were, you know, outside of the, the home and the guy had taken off and nobody could find him. It was one adult and then the rest were teenagers. And, um... I went through a lot of hate. My daughter went through a lot of hate. Uh, she, you know, identified the abuse with the race of the individuals. And, and it really was hard because I was trying to, to help her understand that wasn't the issue. You know what I mean? But we went through a lot. Just She just closed herself off. She wouldn't get out of bed. She wouldn't get off the sofa. She wouldn't go to school. I didn't know what to do. I drug her into counseling. She would sit for an hour with the counselor and not speak um, finally talked her into going, you know, with some antidepressants. She, I don't know, after two weeks of taking them, said, Mom, I'm not taking this. I'd rather feel pain than feel like this because I don't feel anything. Right. So I said, okay. And that was the end of that. And then what I didn't realize was going on about the 15, 16 age bracket because I'm, again, working, you know, full time by then for a telecommunications company. And I was making about 6 uh, I probably about 125, 130,000 at that point. Um, so I needed to work and I didn't realize that she was really, you know, getting sort of out there, but her thing was, um, you know, she was a little bit promiscuous, but she was also, um, a smoker, you know, she was a weed smoker. hmm at first I was a little bit taken back by, by it, but it, you know, in the whole of things, I, I said, okay, this isn't the end of the world because by this time she's turning about 18, 17, 18. Um, right about that time, she moves out of the house at about 17. Um, I fell down the stairs of the house and um, it was middle of the night. I ran downstairs to grab, you know, whatever. And I just kind of just jumped the stairs at night. And I jumped them and I ended up, Fallen on and on my back and um, I guess for the next two or three weeks I was in so much pain sciatica pain that sort of thing and I always wore high heels and I was always you know very capable and very strong and I found myself not even able to walk so I was at a point where I was I started to feel like I was falling apart everything was falling you know apart around me I, I couldn't walk without significant pain um you know, I, uh, I was getting older, I thought. I don't know. Now I look back on it. Th- I think I, I was crazy. But I, I thought I was getting older. I've got this man that, you know, is not contributing, that he's got so many issues. My daughter's things aren't turning the way that I thought they should. My son's doing well. He's playing basketball. He's doing well in school. But it's starting to affect him, too, you know, because he's not feeling the motivation. You know, even though he's a great student and everything, he's not feeling the motivation to go to school. So, Long story short, I um, go into work, and one of the girls there had some I think it was Percocets or Vicodin. I think one of each or something. I don't know. She had been a pharmaceutical salesperson. and She had some extras that she still had on hand. So she said, here, take these, and don't take more than one, please. And I said, okay, I won't. But when I got home, I took two. And I, every night I would have a glass of wine, so I drank my wine and pills or whatever. And the moment I took those that got into my system— I felt a peace and a happiness and a whatever, a numbness yeah, to everything yeah. that was going on. And it was like, all of a sudden, everything was fine. I was like, wow, so I can actually walk, and I'm not feeling all this anxiety of everything falling apart around me. So I got to the point where I was getting doctor to write me more and more and more and more, and then he wouldn't do it. He's referring me to a pain management person, and I go, and I'm you know, going from doctor to doctor and paying just huge sums of money um, at this point. I'm probably up to about 20 oxycodones a day, 30 milligram strength and that sort wow. of thing. And um, I'm like, this is $300 a visit. Plus I end up having to go twice a month and then I'm sending more and two and it's still not enough. I can't do this. Um, you know, we got to, we got to do more. Well, right about that time, unfortunately I was laid off. I was working for Sprint at that time and I was laid off, not, as a direct result, of my pill use at all. In fact, I don't think anyone even had a clue, really. They knew something wasn't right, but they didn't know exactly what, because I'm still able to, you know, put on that face. Function, and yeah. uh, lost it. Yeah, somewhat. I thought I was, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's funny because, well, that's another story, but anyway, it's, it's just, it's crazy. But it's denial. I, um, it's, I was at a point where I'm up to 40 pills a day. I'm driving to court for something and I hit, I bumped the back, I did, you know, not off, bumping somebody's bumper on the way to court, and they let me off the hook. But I'm like, still thinking I'm good, you know, I'm good. I'm like nodding off on the way to court. I mean, wow. who, who does that? But um, anyway, so at the point I lost my job, I uh, was trying to keep my head above water, but couldn't keep up with the house payments because I'd taken a second mortgage out. That was right about the point that the, the housing market was. You know, just taking a complete dive. So bought the house for two hundred and ten thousand. Actually, no, it was two hundred fifty thousand. And then I um, had it appraised and got a second mortgage on it, and it was up to like five thirty-five. And then by the time that I wanted to get from underneath it, the value of the house was only in the low three hundreds. So I would have been a, a completely upside down. Um, instead of just getting out, cutting my losses, and saying Katrina, you know, get some sanity about you. Let's figure this out. I was determined. No, I'm not losing my home because my kids need a roof over their head. This is a failure. You know, I can't. I can't do it. So I started. Um, basically, uh, he talked me into writing uh, a prescription. We at that point they were doing computer generated prescriptions um, that you would just print out. The doctor would just print out and hand to you. So he's like, "We can do that." And I'm like, "But what about the? Isn't there some sort of uh, um, security feature on there?" And he goes, "No, they're not." I'm telling you, trust me. Do one, and I'll run it in, and you know. So we tested it. Lo and behold, he gets away with it. I was like, oh my god. So started getting to the point where we were doing them. I don't want to throw the number out there because I already I made the deal with the prosecutor that we would get everything folded into. But I don't ever want to make this something that someone would look at as something I'm proud of, or by any stretch of the imagination. But let's just put it this way: it was up to a day or every other day habit of having to write one of these. Wow. And it was, it was all over the area. Well, it got to the point where I couldn't be running on myself because they knew my face. And I was making up names, you know. I had made up, I had a whole roster of people with their uh, made up people, made up names, made up uh, dresses, made up birth dates, this that and the other. And I had them stored. And so got to the point where I was paying people who were also already addicted, paying people to go in and run them and coaching them on what to do, you know. And they'd come out and give me my portion, and then they'd take their portion. And it was sort of a win-win. I didn't think that there was any...
2: Yeah, that's wild. Huh? That's wild.
0: It is wild. I didn't feel there was any victims in the situation um, because I felt like, well, they're doing it, I'm doing it, no one's underage, you know. It got to the point where I was getting cutthroat, and I was becoming a person I never thought, a person I would have hated in another life, you know? What can I tell you? It was the power, you know, of being able to get away with it. It was the control. It was whatever. Because my, my mind was was gone, you know? It was like, um, I, I, I'm the one. I can do these. I'm doing these. You guys don't have the sense to do it. I, I'm telling you how to act. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to watch your every move. And you're going to come out you're going to go up this door and you're, I mean, and I'm coaching them, you know, every step of the way, one or two people got caught, but by and large, it was just me. So, um, at that point, um, I was up to probably four, about that point, 40 pills a day or whatever. And, but of course I'm going to get caught. So I did get caught. I got caught a couple of times and I had a detective that was on my case and he, um, was out for blood. He wanted, you know, somebody to, um. He wanted somebody to go in and and actually, um, I guess, try to get him somebody to cooperate, you know, some cooperation or something, Uh, find somebody to tell on, what have you. And I just, I said, I don't have anything to give you. I don't have anything, even if I wanted to, I don't have anything to give you because I'm the one doing this. It's me, all me, you know and he didn't believe me, so it got to the point where I was like, okay, what do you want me to do, give you kids? I mean, because that's bottom line, I only know other addicts, I don't know anyone else, and, uh, you know, he just got rather aggressive, and and basically, um, you know, things got, got heated up, and it's just a really long story I don't really want to get into right now, but um, he ended up uh, coming down hard on me, and they were, you know, talking things like kingpin, this, that, and the other, and really... The bottom line was that I was just in a situation where I was trying to pay for my addiction, trying to pay for my pills, you know. They were costly, and this was the way that I was able to do it. I wasn't getting rich off this. I couldn't even pay my bills. I was getting kicked out of everywhere I was living. I was taking the kids with me, you know. So um, that's uh, that's that's where we were there. So let me take a deep breath here and figure out where we are. Let's see.
2: <laughs> well, I'm assuming um, you, right after this you get go. arrested.
0: Oh Yeah. 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 I'm arrested and I'm, uh, I'm in jail. And, um, this is the, you know, the final time because they gave me a couple times out on ankle bracelets or whatever. Um, so I'm out and, uh, get back, put back in for the final time. And, um, over some time I start to clean up. My head gets a little clear. Then I find out that my daughter is also, you know, with her friends trying to run prescriptions or whatever. At this point, my son had gone to California to be with his dad. He was almost 18 years old. And my um, her fiancé had gone overseas on a government contract. He was working for a government contractor, so he was going to England to, to work that. So I was in jail. Her dad was in jail. Her brother was in California, and her fiancé was gone. And my daughter, who didn't believe in opiate use you know, and hated me for doing it, just started using herself uh, because she had a DUI, and they they told her, you know, if you get caught smoking weed, you're going to get put in jail. So she was on probation. So someone told her, hey, look, if you're on probation, just do the, you know, the pills because they'll be out of your system in two or three days. So she started doing that. She was smoking them at first, and then I guess I was in jail for about seven months by the time she passed away. And uh, by that point, she was actually shooting them up. Um, and I didn't realize how bad the situation was probably until about a month before she passed away. Someone told me, um, you know, she's, she's bad off. And then I talked to her for that last time. Last time I talked to her, she was just completely out of her head, nodding off the phone. Um, I hung up. The next morning, I picked up the phone and called my attorney, and asked him to call the prosecutor and have her probation revoked, put her back in jail, you know, for the DUI. And he said, Well, I'm not sure that I can do that. I don't think they're gonna, you know, but I'll try. And that was on a Friday and it was on that Saturday that she um, you know, we found out she was in the hospital, ICU. There's just so many so much detail to the story, so forgive me if it's a lot of blocks, it's quite a bit of holes probably, but um so at the point that she's at the hospital, they call us down. And I knew that Thursday that she was gone, you know, she was going to something was going to happen. I told one of her friends to keep her alive for me because I was supposed to be sentenced and then I was going to be out. And even though she was an adult at that point, I felt he- you know, heavy responsibility for the example I had set. I-, I took full responsibility for it. And I knew that if anyone could turn her around, it would be me. So I made the decision. I said, look, let, once I'm out, I can get that girl in a rehab. I can do something about it, but keep her alive. And they all assured me that they would. So that was on a Thursday. Uh, Friday, of course, I tried to get her um, bail revoked. That didn't work out. Saturday, they call us. We go up, and there's the detectives, and they tell us that she's uh, passed away. Then they change it and say, okay, well, she's just she's not going to make it. You know, it's oxygen deprivation whatever i said keep her alive because i want to get to the hospital they were working on trying to get her get me to the hospital and resuscitated her through the night and were pretty angry about having to do that because they felt that they you know they said that the situation was beyond repair but i needed to see it for myself right so that morning before i got a chance before they were able to get me over there um, they called me down and told me doctor got on the phone and said that um You know, her body just gave in. At first, I couldn't understand it because I'm like, well, if you're on life support, how does that happen? Since then, I've been able to understand, you know, from what I've been told, how that works out. So um, it was beyond comprehension. I thought, well, you know, if I had been out, I would have killed myself. So I was stuck in here. If I'd have been out, she wouldn't have done it. You know, it was a number of things. And it was just a powerless and devastating feeling because I was stuck there. And I had to deal with this pain, and there was absolutely nothing I could do with it. You know, I couldn't get high. I couldn't do anything. I just had to deal with it. And that was um, that was a, that was a difficult moment. <laughs> I think that was one of those things I reflect back on when I think about, you know, if I go back to doing that sort of thing again, it's like, well, you know what? I mean, I survived the worst moment of my life, yes. and I didn't have a drug. I can do it. And I owe it to her to do it. So um, at the point that uh, she passed away, of course, and they managed to get me out on furlough and everybody at the funeral was high and everybody was offering me things. And, of course, I took it because I had just a cynical, angry view at the, of the world, of, of God, at life or whatever at that point. Because all in all, for everything that I had done, I was just trying to keep myself well. And I had gone to hospitals and I had gone to um, the, the, even the detectives and I said, look, I need help. You know, I need some is there anything? And there was nothing. They were like, I need you to get out there and work. Work for me. You know, give me something. I'm like, I don't have anything. They couldn't believe that I was the one at the top of the food chain. Like, they thought it was some mass conspiracy, and it was just me, you know? And I'm like, look, you guys are making this too easy. You can put these things together on a computer, print them out, you know, and give them to a doctor or give them to a, a pharmacist, and they fill it for you. What addict who's facing withdrawal isn't going to try that, you know what I mean, if it's going to save them time, money, or whatever? You made it too easy. I'm not blaming you, but I'm just saying this is the truth. There's nothing else. There's no bigger picture here. This is it. So at that point, it was about sentencing time, and um, I was supposed to only get 10 months. That's what we all agreed to. And the judge, we still question why or what happened. But he decided to give me the maximum, even though I'd never been in trouble in my life. He just threw the book at me. 17 years suspended sentence, five-year probation, two-and-a-half years of, actually, um, it was just shy of two years, actually, of jail and a huge restitution fee. So,
2: so when you were sentenced originally, you were sentenced to two-and-a-half years?
0: I was The original sentence was two years. It's actually 23 months okay. and then 17 years suspended sentence right. with five years probation. So any time in that five years, if I had messed up, I'd get the full 17 years or a portion of it. And then also um, the huge restitution. So
2: so at seven months in, at seven months okay. in is when, is, is when your daughter overdosed.
0: Yep. I had been in the jail for seven months. And she was, I'd always been a very... A, overprotective mother. And later I've read on that, um, you know, children of addicts and people who grow up as addicts, um, what their parenting styles are like. And I hit every single one, you know, either being overprotective or, you know, disengaged. Um, just, I was the overprotective style. I was the, you know what I mean? the The friend versus parent style. I was the one that don't discipline because I don't want to hurt you. Thing, you know, right. I was all of those things because I didn't want to be, I didn't want my kids to go through what I had gone through. So I didn't give them any sort of, of boundaries and I didn't really teach them anything. And when anything would go wrong, I would save the day. So when I ended up in jail, Kirsten had none of those tools. You know what I mean? She had none of those
2: um, skills. life
0: skills. She just didn't know what to do. She froze right. and panicked and, and the pills, you know, at least made the anxiety go away. So.
2: so in other words, you get a you get arrested, you get a sentence. She was how old at the time when you got arrested?
0: Yeah, when I got actually sentenced, she was twenty.
2: Okay, so she's an adult. She's she, well, twenty. She years di- old.
0: She died, right. She died before it was actually technically sentenced. I stayed in the jail for seven months awaiting sentencing. Um she had died and I was you know, she had turned twenty the year before in December. So she was two months shy of her 21st birthday when she passed away.
2: Oh man, that's just horrible. I'm trying to understand what, what you were going through because not only are you unable to, to help her, not only are you able to do anything, you're powerless to help her because you're waiting for sentencing, but then she passes away and you get sentenced. And now you're uh-huh. you're doing you're doing time. Yeah. What, what you know? What did you do to to keep sane in prison?
0: Yeah, oh, it was the local jail. Um, I was blessed in the sense that um, when this all happened, when my daughter passed away, the major there was a major at the jail. Her name was Major Lambert. She came down and and she took a liking to me, and she said, you know, in another life we could have been friends if things had, you know, been different. You know what I mean? We educated, you know what I mean? We we had a a strong, both of us were strong women who sort of internalized things and tried to cope with them the best we could. And she said, um, first of all, I'm going to get you this furlough, which was unheard of, but she was able to do it for me because we were under the impression that I was only going to get 10 months and I'd already done seven months. So that would have been left only three. So everybody was in agreement with that. But once I was sentenced to the full 23 months, we were all in shock. I mean, my lawyer, her, everybody were like, what is this? Why would this happen? Why Why is the judge doing this? Is he punishing her or is he trying to save her? Or what's the deal, you know? Um, so what she did to help me out, because it had become such a hostile situation for me, I wasn't identifying, you know, I wasn't sort of quiet in the jail. And although the ladies were very supportive when my daughter passed, it was still very difficult for me because I didn't really connect with any of them. So it was even harder. So she decided at that point that she would step in and get me out on work release so I could serve the rest of my time on work release, which was unusual step, but they were able to get that done. So I got to work release and you know I, I did exceptionally well there. And while I was on work release, it came to the point where I was eligible for the ankle bracelet program. So I um, applied for that Initially, they didn't want to let me out because they're like, well, she's going to be living her alone and she's going to be prone to depression. She might, something might happen. But what had happened is my daughter's fiance's mother, the townhouse that they had lived in when they were together, she offered that to me to be able to, to be there and grieve in privacy with the ankle bracelet. So it worked out and I was able to do that and it saved my life. It really did. I don't think I could have made it if that had, you know, had not worked out for me.
2: Nothing short of a miracle, for sure. Yep. Yeah. Ooh, wow. So now you've got the ankle bracelet and so your journey starts basically cuz now you're out, right? Mhm. How, yeah. how long ago was yeah. that?
0: Um that was in 2012 and I was on the ankle bracelet from 2000. Let's see when I went in. I got out on March 2012. I was allowed, March 2012 through, I was supposed to be, you know, my sentencing would be done in April 2013. And um, her daughter was coming back in town. She was in the Air Force. She was coming back in town. She needed the house. So I went ahead and we made a plea to the judge to release me from my um, sentence a couple of months early. And this was about the time that we had started the filming of the FBI documentary. And he agreed. So I um, spent from about March of 2012 till March 2013 in that house. And then I was released on, uh, you know, from my sentence at that point and then started probation at uh, April
2: 2013. Wow. Which is basically the same time you quit doing any drugs.
0: Well, I wasn't doing them before, actually, but I consider that different because I was in the ankle monitoring system, which means they were calling me in there like every other day (laughs) for (laughs) testing. So I don't, you know, I I look back and I think if they weren't doing that, what would I have done? You know what I mean? I don't know. So I don't consider that. I mean, yes, I was typically, you know, clean, but do I want to consider that something of my own doing? Not so much, you know?
2: Okay. So then you start with the movie when you uh, were filmed during that documentary, was that something of a, I guess, a turning point in in your own recovery as you were doing this documentary? Were there light bulbs flashing around you? Was this movie your ability to really establish a foundation for completely walking away from the drugs?
0: Yeah, I'm going to tell you that's funny you asked that because they came... The two DA agents, or I'm sorry, I say that and I shouldn't, they're FBI agents, they've corrected me on that before. The two FBI agents walked into my life uh, because someone referred them to me while I was still um, on the ankle bracelet. <laughs> they're like, oh, if you want to know about such and such, you need to go to see her. So when they showed up, they showed up at my job, and I was in shock. I'm like, are you kidding me? What now? I mean, what now, you know? <laughs> and um, <laughs> they looked at me, and they looked at each other like they were in shock, and it was funny, you know, I don't know what they expected, but anyway, we, we went. We started to talk, and I was so just completely honest with them. I think I disarmed them a little bit because I just put everything on the table. Yes, I was a sucky ass human being. I did this, that, and the other. Um, you know, I take full responsibility and told them whatever they wanted to know, but I didn't really know anything. And they were like, okay, that was the end of it. So then, um, they started to engage with me a little bit more, visit me a couple more times. And then they said, we need to talk to you. We were putting together a documentary. Would you like to participate? And, um, first I was like, well, you know, I, I don't want to sound hypocritical, to be honest with you. I I just, this happens so often people go out and they screw up and then they want to make it right by coming out with this tell all thing. And I don't know if I feel good about that, you know. Um, Then I sort of had a a change of heart. I said, you know what, it's not something that comes necessarily from my heart, but it's something that I think I should do. It's the right thing to do. So I agreed. And um, getting to know them and having them change my perspective on law law enforcement overall, because at that point I had such a bitter taste in my mouth from everything that had happened, Um, they... Uh, yes, it, it was a turning point because I felt obligated to someone beside myself and my children. Someone was there, you know, that was believing in me and I said I can't let these guys down either, <laughs> you know and it um, just started to become more and less about rhetoric and less about just mouth service and about more about reality, what I actually was coming to believe that these things were sort of forming into something that started out awful but that's something that become you know could become beautiful really you know um, over time yeah and that's just kind of what happened yeah
2: wow that is an amazingly powerful story Katrina thank you so much for sharing that with us um there's so much in your story as you're going through um that is just so remarkable that you're still alive. And, you know, as far still as... So lies
0: an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You are absolutely right. I say all the time, like, why wasn't it me? I say it all the time. I don't I don't get it, you know, because I push, I push things so far. I don't, you know, and you have to stop asking that question because you drive yourself nuts. But um, my biggest thing and one thing I do want to convey to your audience is that, When I was going through those things, for as bad, I loved my children still. They were the center of my universe. You know what I mean? I felt that when I was going through this, I went a couple times to the hospital and tried to see if I could get any help, and there was nothing but an alcohol detox place next door. And there was no, I had no insurance, so there was nobody could refer me to anything. And I kept trying to do it on my own. And as soon as those withdrawals kicked in, I just, you know, I pushed out. I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) Um, and the funny thing is that the whole time, you know, I was kept thinking about my kids. If I leave my kids, you know, my son was about 16, 17, somebody's going to take my son, you know, um, this is going to happen. Everything's going to fall apart. But the thing was that was imploding from the inside out. My intentions were always good throughout the whole thing. You know, I thought that I was doing right. I thought I was taking care of my kids. I mean, I thought I was providing for them and I was still functioning, you know, and yet I was doing all these things that I look back on and now and I think, oh, my God, you know, what, who was that person? So when people talk about people being bad, that are doing drugs or whatever, I'm sitting here telling you, I look at that person and say, I don't know who she was. I don't know what she was thinking, you know. Um, it had changed me so much in the fear of, of being sick, which when I went to jail, all came true at the worst possible place it could. I mean, with no relief, they wouldn't, they gave me a Tylenol, you know, they gave me Gatorade. I spent three weeks throwing up, vomiting, sitting on the toilet, you know what I mean? Just to the point I couldn't even get up. I was hallucinating. I was, you know, twitching. I was, my blood pressure was dropping. I was, thought, I wish for dead. I really wanted to die. And I got through it. It took me about two or three months to get to the point that they thought I was okay to put, you know, on the main floor. But I was in horrible shape, and yet I did it. And so that one thing I thought I could never do when I was, you know, out there with my children and had the luxury to do it, I actually could do it. And, and that's the one regret I have every day is that I didn't believe I had the strength at that point, you know. I didn't try harder. Um, I was just in a whirlwind, and I was just so trying so hard to keep our secret a secret, to keep the pride, to keep the kids from being embarrassed, to keep everything from falling apart that I made a bad situation much, much worse, you know? So that's my thing about stigma and shame is that people talk about the parents of addicts and all these kids being lost, but I'm like, but you gotta talk about the parents who are addicted to, you know, the addict parent, because they're raising a generation who are gonna be addicts themselves if things are not, you know, they don't get the help and they don't get the help often because of embarrassment or shame or whatever oh, you're a bad parent, you know? You're not somebody else going to step in and take your job, take the loves of your life away. And that's something that I definitely want to appeal to people. (laughs) You might end up like me where you don't get a chance to make it right, you know? You need to go out and get, you need to get help and not worry about what anyone else thinks. Get it. And to anyone who hasn't done anything yet, you need to think long and hard about it before you try it because it's going to change your brain it's going to change your whole life
2: no question about it no question about it alright so Katrina we're going to start closing up here so what I'd like to know is moving forward what is the message you want to get across to our listeners to to the parents to the children what information your website, the movie give us Tell us everything you would like us to get involved with or take a look at.
0: Um, So the documentary was Chasing the Dragon, and as I said, that was the uh, piece that was put together by the FBI in combination with a couple of agencies, and the goal for that comes with a a, um, study guide. The goal for that is to be used in rehab centers, but primarily middle schools, high schools, for the sole purpose of trying to promote awareness early, there are some you know, there's one version with curse words, one without, and there's been some, you know, this, disputes about the the idea of having the curse, the language, or whatever, and parents wanting to opt their children out. And I look at it and I'm like, you know, you may not think of me as an authority, but I I would think that you should open your mind a little bit. The curse words, in the grand scheme of things, are nothing compared to what your kid is probably seeing on a daily basis. So I think this film is extremely. The people that participated were very raw, very honest, and you know, some of them are still not doing well. And then there's myself and then there's another mother. So I would definitely encourage them to, to check that out. And, um, then of course, um, you can find us at, uh, Kirsten's story, which is a, uh, personal page or not a personal page, but it's a community, uh, page. We also have a group page, um, that's also dedicated to the same. We have, um, set up a, a website that's, uh, currently in process and it's, um, KirstenStory.com and we hope to have that you know up and ready here shortly. In addition, I'm also on Twitter. We have um, at KMK Addiction, and then as well as uh, Katrina King, which is actually Cat King now. And then uh, basically with the film, the documentary, they are doing quite a bit of promoting uh, throughout the country, going to you know just different communities, working with different groups, going to different school districts. And um, it's been a very slow process, of course, because they've had to go in there and just really, you know, grassroots and and getting it going. But um, slowly but surely, uh, they are definitely getting into the school systems and they are opening up in theaters. Uh, Actually, I believe it's up to four now where they have theaters that are um, basically dedicating, uh, you know, one of the screens to an event or whatever for um, awareness discussions, panel discussions, as well as showing of the documentary, down the road here, what we hope to do is be set up to where we'll actually be able to go and do do Q and A sessions with the schools that we, you know, that will be showing the film. That would be local. I don't know how it'll play out nationwide, but I hope, you know, that may be a possibility as well personally, what I hope to do is also start going and and going to the different churches and that are um, that host celebrate recovery and other recovery groups and speaking as well as to um, different schools that may invite me individually, you know, just basically. Are going to be focusing on driving as much on awareness and education as possible. My focus on awareness isn't so much that there's a problem because I think everybody knows that there is a problem. Yes, my <laughs> that's like a foregone, you know. It's just like <laughs> that's conclusion. that's just discussion is over, and I'm <laughs> and I think we're kind of over it when everybody comes out with the I'm here to bring awareness. Awareness is there you know yes. my my thing is okay now what are we going to do we're going to come up with solutions we know you know what are the hows and you know the whys and you know basically get on to the how are we going to solve it um which you know is a very complex discussion but i think that my focus is i am the mother of a child who was lost or you know an adult child who's lost to addiction um but i am also a more you know In the now, a recovering addict, and I go through a lot of ups and downs, struggle with that or whatever, and I have a lot of valuable insight. And I know that there are quite a few other recovering addicts that have insight and and the ability to articulate that. And we need to start bringing in, incorporating more of those ideas to the table, sort of getting heard on that front, uh, because there are you know quite a few things that I'm advocating for. I've written to um, the Drug Czar. By Shelley, and basically giving him my opinion on all this money and rehabs and whatnot that are, you know, that, that they're dedicating these resources to. I think it's all fine and good, but we need to come up with an I, you know, some sort of solution such as a locked facility, some guidelines, you know, that are actually going to work because uh, we can throw all the money we want at it. But people, if you give them 30 days, that's not enough time. 60 days is still not enough time, especially if they can walk right out. You need to have sort of a a situation where okay it's almost like a how you would treat any other mental health serious mental health condition. you know we're going to keep you here till you get beyond that point of wanting to sign yourself out
2: I love what you said in the beginning though that the the awareness is is no longer necessary we We no longer need to bring awareness to the the topic or the issue of addiction or the crisis behind. Uh, pharmaceutical grade heroin and Oxycontin, you know, that that is it's it's an epidemic. So it's out yes. there. The yep. idea is to get to it before the kids do. You know, mm-hmm. the idea is to get to these schools, show them this movie. Uh, right. I know I know that it is a hardcore movie. I think, uh, you know, for I have a 13 year old daughter and I want to show her the movie, you know, um, but but at the same time, uh, I want to ask her mother. You know, ask my wife. Hey, what do you think? Should I show her this? Way? I'm I'm there too. I'm on that I'm on that point where it's like if I bring this into a school, what kind of an impact is going to have for me as a principal, as a teacher? Uh, are parents going to say, "What are you showing my children?" Uh, that kind of a thing. Um, but I think I think as we get as we progress with what's been happening, that. All that has to kind of go to the wayside. And you almost yep. need the shock value that goes along with this because it, it's, it's way beyond a cautionary tale. These are true life stories of people that you know, have relapsed, that have spent time in jail, that have overdosed, that have died. So I think what you're doing is so important. Uh, you say that you're going to school. Are you showing the film in schools that are allowing you and you're also speaking?
0: Yes, well that's the, the the goal. Right now, what they've been doing since February when they released it, and they tried to do some of this before the film actually came out. It was so vague because it, the educators didn't have the actual film to know whether or not it was something that they would be willing to, because then they have to deal with parental consent and all this other stuff. So anyway, post-release of the movie, they have literally had to go to jurisdiction, to jurisdiction, trying to, across the country, some of them jump right on it. I've personally been actually reaching out to people and have gotten on two school districts myself, which was amazing because I went through a person who ended up having ties to them. But what we find is a lot of the school's, they're just reluctant because uh, there may be a little bit of suggested language, but there is a, a version that's you know has no cursing. They're concerned about the content, and you know, and parents being worried or whatever. And I would just say to them, look, this film, the shock value was not contrived, okay? This was uh, real. These agents came across it personally, and they when they came to my case and they were like, wow, you know, they were just in shock. Their faces were just like this person, because they have evidence. It's not like I came up with the story. You know, they have evidence that I had a good life before. They have evidence from tax records and real estate records, you know, that I've owned a couple of houses. And so it wasn't like something, you know, that I said I used to live, I had this life before. They actually know that I did. They know that I was that person who obeyed the law. And then these things happen. So you're trying to figure out what the cause and effect is and how does this happen to someone? And then you see story after story after story, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not just one person, it's, you know, prevalence. So when you're going into the schools, you're like, okay, what would you rather have happen? Because we're aware of the awareness, you know, we know that there's an issue, you know everybody from Saturday Night Live to everything then you know you've arrived right when they're actually talking about it and making jokes about it but the point is (laughs) it's like you know and I had I didn't get upset about that I thought you know what that means that means we're there that means it's front and center you know and I'm not offended because I was that suburban person so I think it needs to be talked about but anyway that aside I think um you know get to the point where okay so what can we do because of Once someone already engages, you know, eventually it does change the brain chemistry. They know that. So how do we prevent that from ever happening? You're still going to have those people who are going to try things. You know, I might have been one of those people myself, or no matter what someone told me, I would have done it anyway. But I do believe if a doctor had told me this is highly addictive, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah. I do believe if I had seen a movie like what we participated in, I'm absolutely certain I would have, once I started having those feelings that something was changing in me, I would have stopped because I've done this with things before but I just didn't know until it was too late. I didn't realize that when I chose to stop it was going to be the way it was. So I think we need to, to you know discuss uh, or get into prevention and talk about that because whether they want anyone wants to believe it or not, there is still quite a bit of stigma or maybe a divide in our country. I can't speak for other countries. but when I go on because I do it every day, to see what the latest is on, you know, the uh, chasing the dragon, um, you know, because p- everybody's got an opinion, right? And I find it is literally 50-50. 50% of the country is like, this is awful, we need to do something. 50, you know, probably 30% is like, well, this is a self-created problem. And then you have a percentage of people who are just downright evil about it. You know, oh, they need to die oh, they need to be put in jail, they're workless, blah, blah, blah. So I used to get really angry about those those sorts of comments. And what I've started doing lately is I'll actually comment, you know, hey, my name is Katrina, I was in the film, and I'm very polite, very not argumentative (laughs) at all. I come across and I say, this is this, and this is me, and and this is where it was. And you know, not one person has come back at me rudely in that discussion. They'd say, you know, whether it's, oh, you made a choice to do this or whatever. Yes, I did. I made a choice when I went to my doctor's office because I was in pain and he gave me a, you a know, prescription. I made that choice, and things started to, you know, but there was a lot going on. And I'm not blaming anyone else. It's my, my choice. It's my whatever. But brain chemistry or life experiences or whatever, you know, we don't always choose these things. And whether you guys choose to medicate with food or alcohol or watching too much TV or sex or whatever, we all have a vice, exercise, it doesn't matter, you know what I mean? And so this one happens to be life-destroying, and people don't go into it going, oh, wow, I want to be a drug addict, I want my life to end, I want to lose everything, I want to go to jail, I want to smell like crap, you know, I'm coming from the jail smell, you know, I want to, I want to eat jail food, I want to, you know, I want to, nobody Does nobody wants that? And if anybody thinks that, they're crazy. (laughs) Nobody wants that for their life, you know. So why do you? It's like it's hilarious. It's like oh my god, they make these choices. Think about that. There,
2: but you know, at the same time, at the same time, that I I like the percentage that you put out there because you know, fifty percent of the people now are on board. Most people now, most people now are on board. If you would have had this discussion five years ago. You would have had a much larger margin of people that say, hey, you know what? These people made a decision. They're addicts. There's no hope for them, so they're better off dead. Kind of. uh... Well, I
0: was was in the middle of all that. That's when they prosecuted me. And my attorney recently, when we sat down at his office to discuss how we can make this $55,000 ridiculous restitution thing that they assessed to me, which should not have been mine to begin with, how do we make that go away? We talked about that, and he said, you know— It's a way different thing now. We have different judges, we have a different perspective. But back when this was going on, it was there was in the middle of, Oh my God, where's this all coming from? And here's this mom and she's writing prescriptions. She must be the one that's responsible for putting it out on the street. You know what I mean? We're gonna come down hard on everybody no matter what. And he said, and if somebody had stepped back and said, Wow, you know, and really realized what was actually going on, that was a person who was having a breakdown, you know, who's at the head of the household and and everybody's looking to her for whatever, and she's trying to make ends meet, and you know, while dealing with this herself, and just got me help. You know what I mean? But they didn't. They villainized me. So yes, we have come a long way, a very long way from four or five years ago, for sure. The biggest thing that I want to say is that there are quite a few recovered former addicts out there who are very bright, you know, very articulate, and have quite a few gifts, talents, and ideas on how we can, you know, help uh, others prevent this sort of thing, you know, and do more. And we definitely need to engage as many of them as possible because there's just so much, so much creativity out there. There's just so many good souls, you know what I mean? That just unfortunately found themselves at a point where they just didn't know how to cope and, and that's what they chose, you know? Some people choose alcohol and unfortunately this one will kill you.
2: There's no question about it. Absolutely, no question about it. And it's true. You know, I'm going to be celebrating 13 years clean this year. And what I've discovered over these years, the friendships and the people that I've gotten to know are some of the most brilliant and talented people that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. And I mean, when you, th- when you think about someone who got to where you were at, all right, you, you are a self-made woman. That was supporting an entire household making great money. And yep. then had to figure out how to support that family and support a ridiculously expensive drug habit uh, to the point where that that mind, that brilliance, took over and the criminal that's aspect right. of it just consumed you. It was like I am I know that's how to do this. Right. I've done this and this and this. I'm a self-made person. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to do this. I've got this.
0: <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. I actually, I actually said that. I said I went in and I paid the paid the a PA one day. I paid a PA three hundred dollars, and I said I walked out of there after five minutes. And I'm like, wait a minute. So I'm gonna pay this guy who doesn't have doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. He just writes the prescriptions. I'm going to pay him $300 to do what I can do. If I'm, No, I don't think so. So I started doing it myself. Think about it, right? <laughs> it's, it's survival. It's what people do every day. And so that's what I did. I figured it out. Figured out how to make it.
2: There's no question about it. No question about it. It's beautiful. So do you have one piece of parting advice that you want to give to our listeners?
0: Yeah, that's the biggest thing for me is that when I fell apart, I was so focused on what I didn't have. I was like, Oh, I don't have my parents. I don't have this. I don't have that. I was abused. My pain was, get, you know, was eating me up. And I, and I couldn't stop long enough to say, Oh, my God, you have these two beautiful children. This is better than most people have, you know, I have uh, my health, you know, I'm a strong woman. I, I just was in the Position of feeling sorry for myself and so let that overcome and overwhelming and that's when it started to take hold And I believe with my whole heart that there are so many people out there and this sounds cliche But it's absolutely true. They have it so much worse than we do And you have to consider that you know, you have to consider that it could get worse Believe it or not And that if you focus on yourself, if you isolate yourself, then you're gonna end up with just yourself you have to open up you have to think of others you have to give to others because when you do that you're not thinking of your own pain and these things don't happen and i wish that i could go back you know reflect on what i did have going for me versus how bad i had it because it did get far worse and it still could so i have to pick up from where i am now i have a good son you know he's going to college as a robotics engineer uh, he's a good good boy doing the best i can for my daughter and i miss her every day but I believe she's okay. I just have to push through. And that's I—that's my word of advice, is to stop focusing so much on ourselves. Start thinking about others. And then I think we won't be, uh, you, you wonder, because they said this in the uh, documentary on the panel, they said we consume some 95% of the world's hydrocodone in this country. So does that mean our country's in more pain than the rest of the countries? Of course not. So you have to think about why we are this way. And I think that that is because we're sort of self-involved. And we're, you know, that's the truth.
2: There is, I couldn't agree more.
0: Addiction seems to be the one thing where everybody can come in and judge and and say whatever. I chose instead, because I used to to be very angry. And I have literally seen myself go through sort of an evolution to make a conscious decision that I'm going to be an educator. An educator, right? And if you're gonna be an educator, you can't get angry at <laughs> no, that small you mind can't. ways. You just can't. <laughs> you have to say, look, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you by example that I'm not gonna get in an argument with you online, you know, and misspell and call each other names. I'm I'm gonna rise above that. And you may not come out and say outright, you know what, you changed my mind, but I know in my heart I've made an impact. And that's the way you do it is by educating, and you can't exclude. I guess that's my main concern is that there's so many addicts or those who affect, are affected by it who can't speak up for themselves for whatever reason. You know, they don't, they can't, they don't want to, they, whatever, you know, they don't have the,
2: they don't have the, the voice strength or whatever. Yeah,
0: exactly. They, yeah, they and, we need to sort of find a way to bring more into the fold that actually can right. And get their perspective because we know how you're going, you know, what it feels like to be in that place, what it, what it would have taken to make a difference. And that's where I'm coming at it from is educating the younger, the better educating those who are like my age, who live in the glass houses. And then also saying, okay, here's what I think would have made a difference. And if we were having this discussion Five years ago, my daughter would still be here. So that's where I'm coming at it from. Beautiful,
2: beautiful. Katrina, thank you so much for sharing your story with us.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate that.
2: Absolutely, my pleasure. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica,
1: Pura Vida.